So who killed JFK? Was it the mob? Was it the CIA? Was it the Cubans? How many gunmen were there? I don't know whether you remember the Oliver Stone film that brought it all back to life. I was really shocked when I googled it and found that that was 18 years ago. But it sort of reopened a wound in the American psyche. Was there a coup d'etat at the heart of American democracy? How many times have you heard it said that virtually every American, in fact, lots of people beyond America, knew exactly where they were when that happened? I can remember hearing the news as a small boy. Can't quite place myself, but if it was Diana, then I know exactly where I was. If it was the Twin Towers, I know precisely where I stood. I know exactly who told me. Over 2,000 years ago, in a pre-media age, a carpenter from a small town in Galilee was accused, was tried, was found to be guilty of no crime, yet he was sentenced to death and crucified on a hill outside Jerusalem. Diana ripples on. JFK ripples on. But just a bit. Doesn't make a huge difference to the world, does it? Yet that ignominious death in a place called Calvary has generated shockwaves that continue and continue and continue to seriously impact human history. Because what followed was a unique event. Three days after the death, it's claimed that Jesus rose again from the dead. Now, Christianity absolutely stands or falls on this fact. As the Bible tells us, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then our faith is a complete waste of time. Our faith is in vain. We might as well pack our bags and go home. We'd have to reassess all of his life, all of his teaching, if that's not true. And I want to say at the beginning today that I think when we look at the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, it's really all one event. It's difficult to separate it out. See, when faced with the claim that Jesus rose from the dead, most people choose not to give it a second thought. They file it in the myths and legends drawer and move on to something far more serious like their horoscope. But it's worth, I think, stopping for a while and thinking about the confidence we can have in the resurrection accounts ourselves. I'm not proposing this morning on this score to be exhaustive. Just introductory, there's lots of places you can go to to get extensive evidence to support the fact of the resurrection. But I just want to begin by making four points. First of all, Jesus really died. Jesus really died. Because that's one of the counterclaims. He didn't actually die. They took him down from the cross. He wasn't dead. So it wasn't really a resurrection. He was just somehow brought back to life. Jesus was in bad condition even before he was placed on the cross. By the time he was nailed to that cross, he'd been awake for over 36 hours. 
he'd been questioned by three different groups and he'd been subjected to three beatings, serious beatings. If any of you have watched The Passion of the Christ, it gives you just some insight into how awful his treatment would have been. He was in bad shape. Crucifixion is a most horrible death. Nails through the hands. It's actually asphyxiation that gets you because you have to heave yourself up to breathe. Jesus hung there, every breath an agony. The guys at the foot of the cross were hard-nosed Roman soldiers. They'd seen death. Those guys knew what they were doing. They stuck a spear in his side just to make sure. And then, just to build on this picture, the Jewish burial procedure was fairly comprehensive. He was wrapped in grave clothes. There were herbs, spices, and he... Are we really supposed to believe that after all of that, he recovered consciousness, slips out of the grave clothes, folds them rather neatly, puts them in the corner of the tomb rolls a huge stone away and overcomes the Roman guards. Don't think so. I think there's enough evidence in that story to make us take seriously the fact that Jesus was dead. Secondly, the tomb was empty. The tomb really was empty. We said the grave clothes were found, folded neatly. So, we've got two options. Either the body had been stolen, or Jesus rose from the dead. So, we have to ask ourselves, why would the disciples take the body? Because they'd be one obvious crowd who might steal it, might they, might lift it. Who were the disciples at this point? Well, they were a frightened, disillusioned, dejected crowd. They'd just seen Jesus in whom they'd invested their whole lives. They saw their hope and a future wrapped up in this Messiah, this Jesus. They believed he was going to change everything for them. They weren't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. There was no sense in them stealing the body. They were mourning. What about the religious authorities? Could they have taken the body? After all, Jesus had been nothing but hassle to them. But if they had, as soon as the disciples began to say, well, he's risen, Jesus is alive, what would they have done? Produce the body. Proof positive. He's a dead man. Did they? No. They couldn't produce a body. And let's not forget again that this tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers, men who would have been very aware of the consequence of this body disappearing. The evidence stacks up. The body wasn't stolen. The tomb was empty. Could he really have risen? Point three, there were many witnesses. After his death, Jesus appeared alive on at least 12 separate occasions to over 550 different people. 
Now, any court would find that incredibly impressive evidence. One of the disciples, Thomas, somebody who'd been really close to him, really struggled to believe until he was actually able to touch Jesus' body, to touch the evidence, the scars, the evidence of sacrifice. And then, for us today at least, a final piece of evidence concerns the change in the disciples. Peter had denied Christ before the crucifixion. He was a dejected man. But by the time we get to Acts 2, here's a man who's utterly transformed, who is completely on fire, who is convinced that Jesus has risen from the dead who goes on to invest the rest of his life in proclaiming Jesus and his resurrection. And he and an army of others did just the same. Now I think it is really, really unlikely that these men were so stupid that they went to their deaths based on a lie. They believed that Jesus was alive. They believed that he had risen from the dead. The former Lord Chief Justice of England, Lord Darling, wrote these words. In its favour as a living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, both positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection is true. That's a fairly weighty statement from a Lord Chief Justice. He's not the only one of serious legal minds who's looked into this evidence and concluded that based on what Scripture reveals, the resurrection happened. So let's ask the next question. So what? So what? What difference does it make to you and me that 2,000 years ago a man was killed and three days later rose from the dead, and 40 days after that ascended into heaven. Does this truth at the heart of Christianity actually make any difference to us? Well, let's do a very brief recap uh, from what we learned in the atonement. Jesus' death on the cross. See, on the cross, Jesus dealt decisively and finally with all of the consequences of mankind's sin. So a world that was decaying under the consequences of man's sin will be made new because of Christ's victory. People who are dying because of their rebellion against God will receive forgiveness and eternal life through Jesus' sacrifice for them if they choose to accept it. The Bible says this, Christ died for sins once for all, a righteous man on behalf of sinners in order to lead you to God. We're no longer enemies, but friends, if we choose to accept Jesus. That's the incredible truth, that door that's opened through the crucifixion. We are no longer enemies of God, but friends. So our main focus this morning lies beyond that crucifixion event. If in dying Christ dealt with the problem of our sin... What was the resurrection and ascension about? Why was it necessary? Did it change anything? Firstly, in the resurrection and ascension, God is proclaiming 
Jesus' victory. In the resurrection and ascension, God is proclaiming Jesus' victory. Whoever wins the 100 metres final in the 2012 Olympics, and I have a suspicion it might be me, will have the incredible joy of crossing the line first. I can't begin to imagine what it would feel like to be crowned the fastest person in the world. But that moment is going to pass quickly. What they'll hang on to, what will prove that it was them, is that gold medal. It's that medal that they will show to their children and to their grandchildren. Not the greatest analogy in the world here, but the resurrection is like Jesus' gold medal. God is proclaiming Jesus' victory to Jesus. It says this in Philippians, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, Christ's sacrifice for us. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above all names. God the Father exalts God the Son in the resurrection and the ascension. God is proclaiming Jesus' victory to Jesus. Secondly, God is proclaiming Jesus' victory to us. The passage in Philippians goes on. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The whole world, the whole earth, everyone in it will bow down to Jesus. The way that we know that his death was effective and therefore that forgiveness is possible is that he did in fact rise from the dead. The resurrection for us is proof positive that death has been defeated. Resurrection assures us that Jesus' death was worthwhile, that it did achieve its goal, that in it the price for sin was paid and that through it we can gain access to God. And then in the resurrection and ascension, Jesus proves that he is who he claims to be. During his life, Jesus made some extraordinary claims about himself, didn't he? Some extraordinary claims. I think if he made those claims on the streets of Ipswich today, there's a very strong possibility that he'd be locked up, medicated and cancelled. But that first century crowd were not stupid. They were faced not just with claims, but they were faced with evidence. Extraordinary words. Extraordinary deeds. Huge crowds drew to listen to him. And those crowds were ultimately forced to make a choice. Does he speak the truth? Or is he just another power-crazed religious nutter that we can write off and ignore? And like those crowds, we have a really important assessment to make regarding Jesus. And that assessment deeply impacts the way that we follow him. Did he and does he speak the truth? I want you to imagine for a moment that you're in a quiz and the question is asked, who is the most intelligent person 
who has ever lived? Now, my guess is you'll get some answers like Einstein, he's a bright guy. E equals MC squared, not a bad bit of maths. Faraday, did some good stuff. Darwin, hmm. Stephen Hawkins, he'd be up there. Some might say from the business entrepreneurial end of things, Bill Gates. <coughs> would anyone, would anyone answer Jesus? As the most intelligent person who's ever lived. Would anyone answer Jesus? In the resurrection and the ascension, God authenticates all that Jesus claimed about himself, all that the scripture teaches, and vindicates his sacrifice. See, Jesus was there before the world began. He was the author of creation. He doesn't just come up with theories about how things hang together. He doesn't need to, because he made everything to hang together. He knows exactly and absolutely how it works. The whole sum of human knowledge doesn't get near what Jesus knows. Is that the Jesus we believe in? Or have we shrunk him down? Jesus. Good teacher? We looked at this a while ago, didn't we? Good teacher? Yeah, great teacher. But only a great teacher if every word that he uttered was true. Some say a lunatic. In light of the resurrection, case dismissed. Some say Lord. In light of the resurrection, case proven. See, that last point is a really important one for us. Jesus' resurrection is unique in human history. Jesus' resurrection, as we've said, rubber stamps all that he said and taught. So it makes total sense for us to treat all that he said and all that he taught as entirely true and utterly trustworthy. That bears repeating. If he is who he says he was, we must treat all that he says, all that he claims, all that he taught as entirely true and trustworthy. The one who died for us knows best how we should live in the big picture and in the detail. Death is not the end. One of the glorious truths the resurrection proclaims to us. When you hit your middle years and I have to admit that I'm now firmly in that camp. One of the things that you reflect on is just how quickly life passes by, isn't it? I was just a teenager a few minutes ago. But so many of us are totally obsessed with clinging on to our youth as we looked at in the children's talk. Our culture screams loud and clear, death is the end. That's what our culture shouts, isn't it? From everywhere. Death is the end. Let me take you to two funerals. One that I led was of a man that I'd only met once. When I met him, he was dying. At his funeral, I was one of the four people there. 
He hadn't had an interesting life. In lots of ways, he'd had a sad and a lonely life. There was no hope at the funeral. Certainly for the man, because nobody knew him. Even the gathered guests were relatives who hadn't met him for a very long time. The other funeral was of a woman that I knew as a young man. She'd been my youth leader. She had struggled with alcohol, uh, had come through that because Christ had brought her through it to a glorious new life and hope. And she died, and as we gathered for her funeral, we were able to celebrate with a tremendous hope that she had gone to be with her Lord. So at one funeral, there's hope. At another, there's hopelessness. And what's the difference? The difference was the choices that they'd made in life and what they believed about eternity. The truth is that the resurrection is shouting back into our lost culture, death has been defeated. Death has no power over those that are in Christ Jesus. There is a hope and a future, and it is extraordinary. Very familiar verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. But what's that eternity going to look like? I think the resurrection can help us just a little with that. Scripture doesn't give us a full picture, and I'm sure there's good reasons why Scripture doesn't give us a full picture, because I guess we couldn't get our heads entirely around it. And it's certainly beyond the scope of this sermon. But when we think about both the resurrection and ascension, there's just a couple of things that we can realise about our future. First of all, the future's physical. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised physically. He was recognisable. The scars were visible and clear. Some say he could pass through walls. Although I wouldn't like to argue that one too carefully. But certainly he appeared miraculously and disappeared miraculously. I certainly wouldn't like to claim that our resurrection bodies will be bodies that can pass through walls. That would be glossing things a little. But our resurrection is not to some ethereal spiritual body. It's physical. So on from that, we recognize that if it's physical and Jesus was raised physically and ascended physically, heaven's a place. Our resurrection, and scripture talks about a new heaven and a new earth, will be a physical resurrection to a real place. Now, I find that really exciting. Because, actually, I love bits about this life. I love the mountains. I love the glorious scenery. Sometimes I can't imagine how things could get more beautiful than they are. And I'm told that my resurrection will be physical. I guess I'm going to be about six foot two. 
and it will be in a place that is more beautiful than I can possibly imagine in the presence of God. And there will be no more tears and no more pain and no more death and no more suffering. When we celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday, we often say together, don't we, when someone says Christ is risen, we shout, he is risen indeed. Hallelujah. And I would love us to take this moment to make that declaration. Because we, through the resurrection, have a glorious hope of a glorious future in the presence of God that is physical, in a place that we can't begin to imagine because of Jesus. So I will say, actually I think you should stand up for this. This isn't a sit-down moment, this is a stand-up moment. Say and I'll say it loudly, Christ is risen, and you will respond, He is risen indeed, hallelujah. And what we'll do then, if I'll ask the musicians to come up so we can uh, begin to sing almost immediately. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. The place that Jesus has gone to is heaven. He awaits us. And there he is our great high priest, pleading with God on our behalf. We have an advocate in heaven. The stuff that we get wrong, Jesus is forgiving us. Jesus is asking the Father to bless us. Jesus is asking the Father to pour out his mercy and gifts into our lives. Christ is risen.